I wanted to start by saying thank you for listening as well as for those of you who've been supporting Standard H by way of making purchases on the website. It's funny, I've had several people ask me if I'm a podcast that makes clothes or a clothing brand with a podcast. Though it is most certainly the latter, I'm just happy those of you who have discovered the brand at all, let alone enjoyed the products I make. If you don't mind leaving a review of the show through whatever app you're listening to this on, it will no doubt help others also discover the show and in turn the brand. And if I could ask a second favor, maybe tell a friend or two about Standard H. I couldn't be more proud of the community that's evolving, and all of you have been so great, be it through DMs on Instagram or the emails I've received. I'm a huge subscriber of the birds of a feather mentality and feel the best way to share a good thing is to include my friends. So if you could help share the pod, that would be awesome, and hopefully your friends will enjoy it as well. As always, thank you so much for the support. If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O or visit them at Contonement.co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. Charles Stanley is one of the more energetic, positive people I know. He and I first connected over Instagram to later meet in person for the first time, where else other than Luftgekult. Charles and I quickly bonded over our love of cars as well as cycling. We both used to race mountain bikes in the 90s. He at a much higher level than I ever did, and we still chat about bikes and riding through our DMs and texts, which is always fun. What I love about doing these podcasts with friends is they inevitably unearth information I didn't know previously, such as the case when Charles began talking about his younger days rock climbing in the New River Gorge and then opening an outdoor store. His first car was a good one, and from a lineage standpoint, a perfect complement to what he currently drives on the rallies he organizes called Targa Carolina. That car, a backdated 911, occupies several minutes of this chat, as Charles is effectively associated with this car and vice versa, so it was great to explore the car's history and details. 
Charles and I, of course, get into some watch talk, which opens the door to discuss his company, Rotor Supply. This episode almost couldn't be more on par with what Standard H stands for, so this was incredibly fun. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard H Podcast. Mr. Charles Stanley, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> happy it's for good to you see to you, be man. Here. I know, here in, in, in Raleigh, North Kakalak. Um, I, uh, when did we meet? We met at Lefkakult five years ago? I think so. For some reason, I thought there may have been some uh, something earlier, but maybe that was it. It was the one in Long Beach at the harbor okay. or a port or whatever they call that place. Yeah, that was uh, Lefkakult 4, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. That was a good time for that, sure. Actually, that was that. Yeah. That was one of my favorites because they had that, the beer inside. Yeah. And it rained that morning. Yeah. And, so uh, you got everyone puddles. was bummed, but the photography yes. with the water was fantastic. I was just about to say that. Like you, you got the puddles. So you got the reflection. Yeah, dude, that was a, that was a fun time. And then I guess it was the lumber yard, the next one, right? Correct. Yes. Ganal lumber yard. That, the four was kind of that one where, the cat was officially out of the bag. Three was much bigger than they planned at Modernica, but when four hit, it was crazy big. And uh, but it was great, and they've continued to to be great. It's a it's such a cool cool static event. I really dig it. Yeah. How did you meet Pat? I think it was more of a, a social media thing where we were following each other, and I'm a I'm a fan of racing, and then we would connect. But but really at Luftkult three, that may have been my first meeting with pat uh i came out with um trevor and we had a, a cool like um wide body green 911 and so i met him at lufka cult 3 really for the first time that's funny i was at that modernica one and i had heard that it would have been like a cool event i had no idea the magnitude i had no idea like the celebrity fanfare like that it, it was it was crazy like it was so much bigger than I anticipated. Either. Oh, I agree. And it, it was wild because I don't know why I decided to go. That was my first foray into Lufkakult. Like oh, okay. I didn't go to one and two. Yeah, I didn't either. Like one was like at Deus in, in Venice. Or Bandito Brothers. Or was that Something. number two? I number two may number have been. Number two is Bandito, I think. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was flying out specifically for Lufkakult 3. And coming from the East Coast, people are like, why are you going to that? Like they were telling me I was kind of nuts for going. I'm like, no, nah, this is going to be really cool. Come with me. And I was trying to round up some guys. But uh, a buddy, Trevor, was heading out there. And so we Airbnb'd this place in... Um, I forgot what the name of the place was, but anyway, it was close by and, and we, we went and it was, it was super cool. That's cool. Um, still one of my favorite events to go to, even though it is huge. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's big, but the one in Indy was nice cause it was a slight pivot. It was in the Midwest. No, no shame on the Midwest, but it's always fun when something super exciting sure. happens in Indianapolis. So it was cool that it was there, a really neat venue that, that developed into, um, a, a great a great location and yeah. everybody came out. So now you've got guys from Chicago and Cleveland and all these other places that wouldn't be in LA. 
So it's neat. Yeah, I was gonna say it just grants access, which is which is kind of what you want, right? Like, I mean, I honestly don't want to go to the same party with the same people all the time, right? Like, I want I love meeting new people, and so by changing the venue location, I feel like you kind of get that where you get some new faces, you know? Yeah, I agree. There there were a lot of new faces there, a lot of new. Uh, individuals that are uh, experiencing brand mm-hmm. for the first time in person. Yeah. So that was cool. But people road tripping from Boston and, and Miami, I mean, driving up from Miami. Yeah. I think sometimes you work a little harder for the car culture out East cause it's not as easily accessible. Mm-hmm. That that's not a, that's not like a, a jab at Cali, but the roads are amazing. The weather's amazing. I was going to say a lot of cars. Yeah. The weather too. Yeah. It's you know. so, it's so good to visit and drive out there. So, um, but uh, yeah, we, we have to travel maybe a bit more and, and uh, turn over some stones to get it together. Yeah, but you guys get to see leaves change colors and such. So That's there's true. that benefit too. Yeah, I just did a, a small run Saturday in Virginia uh, on a route that we had for the spring event called Blue Ridge Ruckus. And the leaves were f- amazing. Were they peak? It was fantastic. I, I wish I would have stopped to take more images, but uh, I was leading, leading the group, small six, six car group, and we had some fun. Nice man. That's yeah. We'll get more on the on the rally front in a bit. Where were you born? I was born in Roanoke, Virginia. I was thinking Virginia. Okay, yeah. so um, I should always trust my gut. Roanoke, Big Lick. That's a nickname for it. But yes, yeah, stayed there all through um, school, high school, and then even would visit back during college. Uh, went to college at Virginia Military Institute. But Roanoke's a cool place. Now, VMI is next to Washington and Lee. Correct. They are actually side by side. Like literally next door. Literally side by side. Like you leave that, the one gate. And it's a big uh, difference in the culture and the participant at those schools. Yes, that's my understanding. (laughs) Yeah. And it's fun. I mean, looking back, it was was a difficult uh, career in college, but I think I probably needed that. Otherwise, I would be heading to the mountains and going rock climbing and... I needed to, to, if you're not in class, you're in trouble. I probably needed that at that time. Were you a big rock climber? I was really into rock climbing in, in high school, uh, late 80s. Um, Where also were you a soccer climbing? player. Uh, mostly New River Gorge. And that was kind of when it was getting discovered. So people were putting up new routes and it was in the magazines and there was there were new walls being discovered. So you could go there and put up first ascents and get your name in the route book. And uh, it was neat. So, That's that's awesome. I climbed in high school too, actually. And are, are you climbing at all now? Like, do you boulder or anything? I don't. I um, I have a pull-up bar that I that I jump on occasionally, and uh, but I don't do anything right now. But I'd like to do some bouldering. That's so good. It's just great. It's great for fitness, and there's no equipment. You, I mean, you have shoes. You know what I mean? Like, you could literally do it in khaki shorts or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I like about it. It's just it's it's super accessible, right? Like it's very powerful too. I mean, the, the, totally. the bouldering moves you pull and then you get into the culture. I, what's funny is I bouldered the hardest when, when I lived in Florida uh, and it was all gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would, I was going out to these gyms and I would show up and look at people and I'm like, man, that's insane what that guy's doing. And then four months later, because I was going three days a week, yeah, I was pulling it. the stuff they were. And then I was, I did some competitions and it was a blast. Um, and I was living in Gainesville, Florida. So it was all gym, but uh, it was fun. What took you to Florida? Believe it or not, the North Face sales rep position for Florida, South Georgia, South Alabama. 
So I, I moved down there from Virginia thinking, hey, North Face is great on your resume if you're if you're in sales. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like a, the MBA for if you're an outdoor salesman. Sure. And uh, we moved to Gainesville, and, and I was racing mountain bikes. But uh, you wouldn't think North Face would be a crusher in Florida, but I think the largest ski club in the country at the time was in Fort Lauderdale. So you're selling Denali jackets to college students and McMurdo's, and it, it was fun. So college, Florida was cool. That's amazing, man. I um, we're definitely going to jump around a lot in this conversation because we have so many similar interests. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. So, um, buckle up, I guess. <laughs> um, so I know you were a former bike racer because you and I have talked about it. But like, what got you into cycling slash mountain biking early on? So the the thing that pulled me into racing was I had gone to Virginia Military Institute to to kind of play soccer to go to school there. And I found between my freshman year and uh, sophomore year, I traded like a Denon portable CD player for this mountain bike to this guy that was sponsored. So I got a Rocky Mountain hammer with a rock shocks. And that was in 1992. So it was a, it was a cool bike. So I rode it all summer, just riding for fun. But as, as a, athlete I went back to school and decided hey I want to ride and I submitted paperwork to the commandant of Virginia Military Institute that my military duty every day was to ride a bike and he approved it so if I didn't ride my bike after class I could get in trouble just like if you're on the basketball team you have to go to practice to practice or lift weights so so I was riding, and I'm just having fun. I'm ripping through the woods, loving it. And then people, several people joined, thinking, man, this is going to be great. But what they realized was when I went out and rode, I was hammering. So yeah. they came, came out thinking, we're going to jump some trash cans and get dirty. And I would take them on these like painful, epic rides. And I didn't think I was doing any harm, but ultimately the, the, the club team shriveled down to basically kind of me. And uh, I had fun all winter, and then I did a race by chance in West Virginia, and uh, it was my first one, and I did really, really well. And and during the race, I was dropping my water bottle and picking it up, and I wasn't a local, and I camped out. I actually wore – it was colder than expected, so I wore my my wife's – my wife now, but then girlfriend. I wore her, like, ladies' tights over my bike and shorts so I could stay warm. But uh, that was a blast. And the next next spring, I rode all winter just having fun, and the next spring I did a race, and – really won by a large margin so much that they're kind of saying hey it's not cool that you were in this category you should be up and uh I was like oh yeah I didn't know this is my second race I'm sorry so that year I went from beginner to kind of pro that second year and then just loved it and, and race and you get to know people and then you get some sponsorship and I was never getting big money but I was getting free bikes and a little bit of money and kind of like an east coast hero but if you went out to the big races all those national badasses from California and Colorado would you know, you so crush me. What year was this? This was uh, probably 1993 is when I did that, went from so beginner to, to up. So this is like peak specialized stump jumper, Ned Overend. Correct. Like that whole crap. Missy Giovi yeah, is on Ned the Yeah, Ned Overend, John Tomac, Rishi Graywalt, the Europeans. Like then 
Then the U.S. had a stranglehold on it, but the Europeans through cyclocross were starting to come in. Thomas Frischnecht and and Enrique Jernice and all these people that were cyclocross national champions. Yeah. So they start to coming in. And then also in 1996 was the first year mountain biking was in the Olympics. So it was getting tons of attention. People were leaving road biking getting six figure contracts in mountain biking. Right. And, and, and everyone was throwing money at mountain biking. There were parties after races where you'd walk away with crazy amount of swag and big box trucks. Think motocross now was cycling in the nineties, uh, huge categories. So you could, you could win money on a Sunday in North Carolina in the pro class. It was great. It was fun. So were you, were you a good student? I wasn't a good student and it was more of high energy wanting to just get out and and maybe maybe it was interest because there are certain things that like in history I could focus down in and and I was really into what was happening in this war or something but but math was a challenge and mm-hmm. and I was definitely class clown want always ready with a comeback and I was never um mean or malicious but definitely love to get the class laughing out loud and distract the teacher and I was the same way yeah that's amazing so I feel bad because because I was a nice guy but I just wanted to I mean you whatever you said I had something to say and then and then like seven people around me would just laugh out loud and then that's that's kind of my middle school and high school yeah what did your folks do my dad was a social worker for the veterans hospital for like 35 years. So he'd go to the veterans hospital and do social work. And then my mother was in sales, but she left early in my, uh, in my youth. I think I was maybe eight or nine, they divorced and she, she left. So she kind of went out of the picture. Interesting. So single, single working dad, parent, five brothers. I'm the youngest of five. Oh my God. I had no idea. Yeah. You can tell I'm like the youngest kid personality, like fighting for that attention or, Oh wow. That's interesting. So are your brother? Are you still close with your brothers? Yeah, yeah. There. Well, there's definitely with five. There's an age sure uh, gap. difference. The, yeah, yeah. the oldest is 15 years older than myself. Right. So the youngest, besides myself, he and I were close because we did everything together. And then uh, he would be. He's my babysitter, my foster dad when my dad's at work, kind of thing. So yeah. Right. Right. Did you work in high school? I did. I I, I needed cash to go get carabiners basically and so i got a worker's permit at 15 so that i could start making money at harris teeter minimum wage was 335 and uh i i I had my dad sign paperwork so that i could work before i was 16 so what were you bagging groceries bagging groceries yeah yeah Yeah, bagging groceries and then they wanted me to they wanted me to be a checkout clerk and i wasn't into it because i just like bagging (laughs) and but then we it was funny because you the the culture of a high schooler at a grocery store you'd go back where they're stocking stuff and punch your hand through like a a charmin towel thing because it's soft but it just feels so good (laughs) and and then you're just laughing at everybody that that checks out it was it was fun and then i got friends once i got a job there i got them jobs there so Uh so there's like seven of us a crew bagging groceries at harris teeter just looking at each other laughing and uh it was good so what did you like about bagging groceries because like i i self-proclaimed ocd so like for me i would be all about that process it's like tetris yeah i mean building the bags is great but for me it was just i can make money now to go do whatever so I, I wasn't in love with bagging groceries, but they said, we'll hire you. And I said, I'll take it. Right. And luckily 
maybe four months later, I turned 16 and I had like an old 68 Volkswagen bug. I was going to ask you what your first car was. That was my first car. So I was rolling to Harris Teeter in the bug and then I'd go bag groceries. And I mean, if you think 335, that's not a lot, but I'm like, Hey man, every hour that's like a carabiner. Well, yeah. And what did gas cost back then? I mean, it was like a dollar. Yeah. A dollar. I mean, maybe it was like 89 cents or one nineteen. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was good. And actually I, I got a job, a summer camp offered me a job like a scout camp. So I went in and I was like, Hey, I'm going to do the summer camp thing. And they're like, well, if you go do that summer camp thing, you don't have your job. I'm like, all right, see you later. Bye. <laughs> yeah, bye. And I didn't get it, get, get to go back to Harris Teeter, but had fun. So you were buying carabiners, but what got you into climbing in the first place? I'm trying to think what, wait, you know, what part of Virginia are you from? So Southwest Virginia. So is Ro- oh, you said Roanoke. Okay. I think it was like, I love to go in this outdoor store called Blue Ridge Outdoors and dream about a Patagonia jacket, a Gregory backpack. Like so you, you've I'm always a been a head. product I guy. was into gear and I wanted a job there, but I was young and you kind of have to prove yourself. So those dudes were climbing and I'm like, man, this looks cool. And, and even in high school, I was reading mountaineering books. I think at one time I was into mountaineering, hmm. but it was more of, I was into it, but never did it. And mm-hmm. I didn't have any gear. But then also I think I realized mountaineering, you're just kind of walking through the snow instead of climbing vertical. So I never really did much mountaineering, but, uh, yeah, got into, got into rock climbing and got a little rock climbing community and just kind of pushed that. Right. Right. That's super cool. So what'd you do when you left VMI for job wise? When I left VMI, the, my, um, counselor for the, or advisor for the mountain bike team, cause you have to have someone on staff. He was a rider also. Mm-hmm. I said, let's open an outdoor store in Lexington. So he said, let's do it. So my last semester, I did all the buying and purchasing and we built out a store and I graduated like a Saturday and we opened the doors Monday to Rockbridge Outfitters, which was an outdoor store in Lexington, Virginia. And we sold Gary Fisher, Specialized, Birkenstock, Marmot. We were an outdoor store that was, the the, the community needed it, but it's a small community. So you're not gonna crush it like you would in some major city how did you guys fund it uh he was a professor so he was financially stable so we we signed a lease and all these places give you terms so he probably put his house up for a line of credit and uh we didn't get nutty but i was the energy and the knowledge and the low pay and he was the the guy that would do the books and and he built out stuff and i was also at that time racing mountain bikes right well, wow, that's crazy. I had no idea. Well, I know like when we met, were you a district, a district regional manager for Cannondale or something? Yes. Well, I, I, I did that for a long time for Oh four to maybe 2018, just managed a, a, a region for Cannondale. Great, um, job. I mean, you're riding a ton, you're, you're in the bike community. So it's just fun, really fun. And, uh, yeah, I did that for, for quite a long time. They knew me from racing pro and, um, I pursued that for a while, actually, while I was with North Face to, to, to go into that. And, uh, I dug it North Face. The, the drawback is there's so much gear and you have to show that to people. Right. So you're really getting racks and racks of clothing off after a few years. It definitely it wore on you. Beca- yeah. It became a grind. Um, whereas the, the Cannondale thing, you're looking at a catalog and then you look at some cool gear and you go for a bike ride and then you do need to write that order and you need to follow up and take care of people. But right. The, the account management, you can't bring around a hundred bikes to show people. Right. So here's one cool bike, check it out. And then let's write this order. Yeah. I mean, that's what I love about the bike industry is because it's just like, okay, 
what you know what I love about the bike industry, which <clears throat> I guess there's several other industries like it in this way, but you really do get what you pay for in the sense of if you're spending more money, the product does get better. Yes. You know 100%. what I mean? It's either lighter, more efficient, the shifting smoother, the braking's better, like whatever, whatever, whatever. That's what I love about it. It's like such a linear sales pitch, I guess. Oh, definitely. It's and it, like, it makes a difference in, in what you're riding. And right. if you're pedaling the hill, having three pounds off that bike is, is nice. Yeah. Whether you're off road or on road, it, it makes right. a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's also something too, where it's like not really cost prohibitive to get in. Like you can get a cheap mountain bike as your first mountain bike. And what I mean by that is like, Yes, there you could approach it in the yuppie sense where like, yeah, I'm getting full XTR on my first bike, but I'm just kind of like, no, dude, pump the brakes, like get something cheap, make sure you like it. You'll all you can always sell that bike later and then move up the category of, you know, whatever it is, XT or XTR later. But like, don't be the guy that gets the nicest set of golf clubs on day one. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it's just you may you may not like golf. Yeah, you know, I agree. And as long as someone gets what, what the the trouble is, some people that are competitive and they know they want to rip, they they need a nice bike, right. but they they spend a, they buy a six hundred dollar bike and mm-hmm. then they go ride forty five minutes a day. Then the next thing, it's an hour and a half a day, and and they're destroying the rims and everything. And it's like, hey, this this six hundred and fifty dollar bike is kind of a campus cruiser, right? And you are ripping off road, right? So, so then, when you get on the proper equipment, yeah, you're just that much better, more efficient. It feels good, shifts clear, and so uh, yeah, that's what I love about it. I agree. It. It's just because it it's just it's almost intuitive to it's, spend more money. You're going to get a better bike, yeah. <laughs> and it's such a pure thing to. Like at our age, there's not a lot of people 40 or 50 that are playing football or <laughs> basketball, but right. yet you can cycle into your sixties and seventies and it's, it's a good sport, low impact. Low impact and yeah. You've kind of got that gearhead component and speed and fitness. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a really good hobby. Yeah. You can totally geek out on all the equipment and there's, there's never enough accessories to explore. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I love that as somebody who loves gear myself. So when, when exactly did you fall in love with Porsche? I mean, you obviously had, you know, your bug when you were 16 when, when was there like, was that kind of, did you fall in love with Porsche because you know, kind of the bug is sort of in the family or like, how did you get into Porsche? What, what was the light switch? So the, the bug, um, was what we had and my dad had had them and we lived up this like gravel road that in the wintertime with snow and that bug with rear wheel drive and the engine in the back, he'd put chains on that and we would go up our snowy driveway that was like a mile long. Super capable. Super capable. And we'd road trip in that. So I knew the bug, but I did there was no one in high school. No none of my peers really were around Porsche. Their father didn't have a Porsche. Mm-hmm. So I just didn't see it at the time. Bug a bug was like a great car and that was really about S- it. Still is. It still is. My <laughs> my bug is at, at my dad's house kinda rotting into the ground. And believe it or not, you my, still have it? I, it's still there. Yeah. What color is it? It's green with, b- believe this, the hood is tan and the deck lid is tan. And that was totally just because we needed parts. But it is a replica of my current 911. And I didn't even realize this when I did my 911. But it's a it's a kind of a 
I don't know what the proper color is, but it almost looks like British racing green with a with a tan hood, tan deck lid, and tan gas cap. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. So it's like I, it's like crazy foreshadow. Yeah, crazy foreshadow. So anyway, when when I got rid of the bug, got a rabbit, which was cheap and sure. fun, nimble, uh, nimble, and then we were always Volkswagen because it was just good good cars. Sure. Um, and and I got deep into Land Rover for a while there when I was able to have a little bit of extra cash, but. We got a 944 in the early 90s. It was a blast, and they were kind of inexpensive. And so then, this was North Face day? This was, um, yes, I think. It may, it may have been pre-North Face. Oh, wow. Yeah, pre-North Face, which is uh, just, I think maybe I, I was late 90s North Face. So this was mid-90s. And I worked for Cliff Bar for a while. Uh, they, they were one of my sponsors, and they asked me to be a field marketing rep after I stopped racing. And I was, I said, sure, that's great. Um, what's interesting is I, I stopped racing and I said, I need to make some money. I got a job at Allstate. That's my one kind of adult desk job, desk job I've ever yeah. had. And they offered me a, a good salary. So I, I was like, sure. And I was making okay money. I didn't stay there 10 months cause it was horrible. Just think everybody you're talking to was in a car wreck. So like that phone call is horrible. And he, it's just like being a claims adjuster for Allstate. So I, luckily when I was at Allstate, Cliff Bar called me. They cold called me and said, hey, we want you to be our field marketing guy and do this, this, and this. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. So Sweet. anyway, uh, it was in the early 90s. I got a 944 and loved it. And then we liked it so much that, that we sold it to uh, my wife's father and bought a, an upgraded one, the 944 S2. So those cars now... When you really tune those and kind of upfit them with whatever mods, those are like, or at least over the last 10 years, they've been like super popular for autocross. The 944S2 or just any? Just a 944S right. in particular, like that engine. Yeah. It, they're great. And the S2 is a better version than the S. Okay. So it has like the turbo body kit, uh, turbo brakes, but it's normally aspirated and a little bit more horsepower. It's mm -hmm. a cool car. I'd, I'd snag another one for sure. But then when we had that, we we had our first child uh, uh, in 2000. And so we sold that and got something that was a little bit more accommodating to uh, building a family kind of thing. Sure. So I was out of it. At, at, once I sold that, I didn't get another car until uh 2008 or something like that a 911 or really? 2009 or maybe 2010 something like that yeah so and it was only a, been over like the last 11 12 years that you've that I was able to get back in and get it this time I was able to get a 911 interesting so uh, yeah it was it was a little bit of a having kids three kids oh sure yeah car seats car don't seats, really fit the uh, bill yeah. what but was your first 911 then it was a 1986 911 just stock carrera white with black uh, beautiful, beautiful, bought it out of Richmond, great car and almost immediately wanted to track it. And then once I did a track day, instead of changing things on it, I bought a set up track car. So I went from zero to one to two almost immediately. And then was doing a lot of track days in another 86 Carrera. So you had a, a second car Correct. for that, both yeah. accordion bumper. Yes. Yes. Both what? impact bumpers. Yeah. Mid eighties. Interesting. What'd you pay for those back then? The the uh, the first one I paid, I want to say fourteen. 
for it. And then what's funny is like, I think two years later I sold it for 19 maybe to someone in Canada. He flew down from Canada, grabbed it and uh, drove it up. And how, then the, how crazy is that you made 30% on your investment and or, which wasn't an investment, I think on the onset, right? You were right. thinking of it. I as wasn't an thinking, investment. but now what would that car sell for? Oh yeah. Now that car would be forties, right? Uh, a, a nice clean one. And then Double. I bought the track car, uh, which was street legal, but it had r- kind of race seats in it and a rowdy exhaust. And, and I would drive that so much that I ultimately wasn't using the stock one much. So then I let that go. And, um, then you're kind of looking and shopping and finding neat stuff and, and yeah. getting out there and driving. And I turned the red Carrera track car into a Mexico blue wide body. Oh, you had it painted. Yeah. What flared painted ducktail interior. And, uh, it was super cool, but I had found the one that I currently own sitting at my, the guy that services my cars and it was all white and it had been sitting and a dude was putting the coolest stuff he could find on it, but it wasn't finished, but it had been sitting there a couple of years and I kept saying, Hey, I'll buy this. I'll buy this. And then he, one day he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sell, sell it. it to you. Yeah. Who was doing the work on the blue car? Uh, locally there's a body shop called Rockies and they did the full paint and conversion, everything. And then my, my shop that I've been going to for since, since I bought my white one, um, is called Miller sport and it's in Hillsboro, Chuck Miller. Oh, good, good dude. Uh, has been around for a long time. He still services everything, uh, checks my cars before rallies and, and is a solid, he's, he's not the fastest, but he's really, really good. And we've got a great relationship. No, fastest getting fastest the work meaning, done or driver. Yeah, like in on in at noon out in June. Oh, uh, you yeah. Know, but he's great. And uh, and we joke about it. And, and as long as you say, hey, uh, I want Chuck to do this. And he's not going to turn around in 24 hours, but he really wants you to be happy. He's thinking about things beyond. If you bring it in for breaks and you and you might need something else, he's going to notice that and say, hey, do you want you want to consider this? Right. I think you should. Right. So he's looking out for that, that client and, um, we've got a great relationship. So two thumbs up for Miller sport. That's awesome. So the white one is the one that we have today. That one. Yes. That's a 71. It's an 85. Like I said, it's an 85. <laughs> yeah. It's an 85 back date. Uh, and at the time I, I bought it, I couldn't afford a real long hood. So what year would it have been? If it were a long hood, then if this were a long hood, it would probably be a 71, 72, okay, so that's why I was thinking it was yeah. a 71. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's cool. So, all right. So it was white and 85 backdated with the long hood. Yes. So what did you do? You just replace the front bumper. You get a longer hood. So what this else, one, what else is involved in that? What was cool about this one is it was sitting at Miller sport covered in dust. It had just been painted. Cool. So it's all white. And the long hood conversion had been done. So where you have to replace the bumpers, the fenders, the hood, and all that stuff. However, there were no glass in it, no carpet, headliner, no seats, no wheels on it, no fuel tank. It had a ducktail, and the transmission wasn't hooked up. So that kind of stuff. So when I bought it, the the bones were there. And then I was able to say, hey, I'm going to do a center fill fuel tank and I'm going to, I want the olive hood and I removed the ducktail. And then I, I had the Fuchs, so I put the Fuchs on it. It's got a G50 transmission, which they don't normally have in 85, just a little bit different or, or, or more modern than, than what would come. So I was able to, to build it out the way I wanted it, carpet kit, 
uh, houndstooth leather seats make it kind of my personality. And I was going to say you could you spec your own car at that point. Yeah. So that was good. The hard stuff, the paint, the bodywork, the long hood conversion, and the engine were all done. What was the motivation behind or and or inspiration or you know what led you to the centerfield cap for example or the olive hood like why olive like all those details where were those coming from so the centerfield cap back then and say 2008 you, you just didn't see a lot of that or 2010 uh and i think that the flavor at that time people that were doing backdates they were very much 73 rs clones Got it. So DuckTales, side duck script, tail, yeah. painted Fuchs, 73 RS clone. That was what was going on. Um, the I wanted a Centerfield tank, and luckily when this car was done, they never cut out the left fender for fuel. Mm. So that was already filled. All I needed was to have the tank put in and have a Centerfield kit done and a, cut a hole in the hood, which is what we did. Um, which so is cool. What was the turnaround time from, say, start to finish on all these projects? For, for that one, it was at least a year. So what were you driving during that year? I had the red uh, the red Carrera. Got it still. That okay. I was driving and doing some track days. And uh, so, yeah, while this, one, while this one was coming together, I was building this 100% what I wanted. And if I were building this today, it would be exactly the same. That's what's cool. I love like, it. Like when I go to a rally and I see my car, I want my car. But uh, – and and I wanted the hood and deck lid contrasted because that was a little bit of some personality. Also, Porsche did that. If you were campaigning two cars, you would do color contrast on one so you could tell them, a diff- tell them apart on track. So that was a little nod to motorsports. And I went olive because maybe it was a little gritty. No one was doing olive. It would Initially, I was thinking orange, but I thought that was the 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 easy path. So I went olive because it was maybe a little bit ugly, a little bit gritty, a little bit rowdy. And I'm glad I went olive and that's a Porsche factory color. Cool. Yeah. So you've obviously had your hands in a lot of cookie jars with regards to like buying, selling, trading, you know, Porsche, right. Specifically yes. 911s as well. What pointers, major takeaways, advice could you give people looking to buy their first vintage car like this, or at least, you know, an older car pre-owned what what are some like major things to look for and make sure it you know any tips uh some tips so i would really um i love i think it's great to buy from individuals because you're meeting the person that owns the car they're going to have the records um i i really encourage great cars coming from great owners and I'll say two things. The way you end up with a really great car is starting with a really great car. There's a lot of people that are chasing a deal, and the next thing you know, they've bought a $30,000 car, and it needs fifteen grand worth of work. And right. when they have forty five in it, it's not a $45,000 car. And maybe these that, that number's from three years ago. But um, And I, someone else gave me a, a, a token of advice. It says, find a car you can't afford and buy it like you never regret the car being nicer than you expected right sure but you do get frustrated with oh this thing needs a top-end rebuild and i didn't know it or oh this has had x and and that's one thing that i do is is consult and and give advice on acquiring that air-cooled 911 i have people that reach out to me and and i offer them advice on something they're chasing or i 
I bring them a car. And you really want to be careful of the the auctions. Um, those people are paying way above market value for below market cars. You can hide things. You can you can lose papers that that um, a, an original owner or even a third owner would typically keep. So the auction, you buy it and you're and you're done. You don't really get to get down and deep with the owner or with the car. Um, and people get excited and they get to flex and they're, they're, they're paying up on these auction sites. So I'm, I, I stay away from auctions from buying and selling, but I do offer advice and help people. Um, but just, you can always clean up a dirty car, but you really can't clean up an abused car. So look, th- dial it back, be patient, uh, be passionate and excited, but, but just, you can kind of look at these telltale signs and, and, um, just don't jump into your first one. Right, right. No, I think that's sound. Um, you also organize rallies, Target Carolina being namely the, the I guess, the label, right? The moniker you go by. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you start doing rallies and like what did those first rallies look like? When did those start? The first one I put on was, I think, 2016 and it was called Target Carolina and it was in Chapel Hill. And with a rally... It's Target Carolina because basically we're all replicating Rally Monte Carlo or Targa Floria, which are historic rallies in Europe. Sure. So um, there's a there's some incredible rallies out there: Hill Country Rally, Robbins Rally, Fault Line Rally. I just thought let's call it a Targa to have one, one more Targa out there. There is Targa California, and they do a Targa Colorado. Um, but uh, it's just getting people together, driving at pace. The first one was really a one day event. And then the second year we went to the North Carolina mountains and the North Carolina mountains provide amazing roads, uh, as good as some of the roads in, in California or the Northeast. Granted, you don't get to see the Pacific ocean on your, on your, uh, way down the mountain, but, uh, they're really good. They're tight, they're twisty. And, uh, this year we had year six of target Carolina. And then we also put together a spring event called blue Ridge ruckus that was in Southwest Virginia. Sweet. So, so two events right now. Yeah. It almost seems like it's, it's become something that needs very little publicity. Uh, the applicants are a plenty. Yes. And, and for, for my events, I email out people I know. So it's a little bit different. And, uh, this is something that's great to touch on. It's kind of like I'm throwing a party and I'm inviting my friends. So I want to get to know more people, but, uh, I really want to bring individuals that I know to the gathering that have a great, attitude they're they're down to to drive they're people you want to have lunch with so it's not a blank sign up we really try to bring good energy and run with people that are that are smart and that that want to have fun right i mean i think that's awesome because then you know you're also you know it's birds of a feather obviously but knowing people and having that relationship also brings a whole litany of other kind of positive attributes to the experience right like i know cole pennington for example has been on one of your on one of your rallies and and you know you start talking watches which you know we should maybe bring up as well because we both love watches so much but you know it just it makes the experience more well-rounded and i think it sounds phenomenal yeah it's Um, it's fun it's they're just really some of the emotions and the energy that you feel out there as adults I think I've mentioned this before, but it's kind of like your summer camp or if you and I are teammates on the district soccer team and we win and we're like hugging and we're riding the bus and we're, you, you feel all that as a 35 year old, 45 year old, 65 year old. There's a lot of people too that leave and they're like, 
man, I didn't know these cars could do this. And this changes how I want to experience my 911. Yeah. There's a, there's a big difference in running at pace with 10 guys that you want to hang out with in the mountains versus uh, a cars and coffee where you're parking, you're kind of walking around. And, and I think there's a place for those and it's great. And those are, those tend to be kind of gateway into your tribe. Sure. But uh, I'm, I'm excited. I want to do more. Um, and they're just, they're so much fun. And I enjoy these probably more than, than track days because you, you never know what's around the corner. You're having, you're having lunch with your buddies. You're not waiting on the next run group and, uh, the scenery's changing. And if the events put together, well, there's just great flow. And I'm given a lot of these guys that, that are stressed at work, mm-hmm. a chance to just unwind and, and check out and yeah. Hey, here's what we're having for lunch. Don't think about it. And here's where we're staying. Don't think about it. Here's the route. Don't think about it. And they just come back like, man, this was great. And if you're lucky, you get lost. I mean, it's better to be lost on a rally than found at home. That's what I say to say to people at the driver's meeting. I, uh, I am also a big major like proponent of, we never grow up. We just get older. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You can be a kid here. Uh, it's just so much fun and goofing off and, um, just a good group of people and the cars. The, the neat thing too is air cooled. It is an air cooled event. It didn't start that way. Okay. So it's specific. It's specifically air cooled Porsches and, it, it didn't start that way, but it evolved in that way because the cars are so robust. You can drive it all weekend, drive it home, and do it again. But the the air-cooled platforms, the 70s cars with their weight to horsepower and the 80s and the 90s, they all play very well together. Uh, so someone with skills in a 70s car can, can keep pace with a, a 90s car or an 80s car. Mm-hmm. So that's why I kind of capped it at that. It's It's no discrimination against modern cars but take all, your 992 turbo s and get out of here right yeah well a lot of people do have those as a secondary car i'm um, sure they do yeah. but uh also at 85 miles an hour these air-cooled cars feel so good you, it's way better to drive a slow car fast than a fast car slow and so that's uh what we're doing i've had a lot of fun times in rental cars i'll say that yeah that's true that's the funnest <laughs> car made of rental car um, okay. So let's talk some watches. You also buy and sell watches. Correct. Um, predominantly vintage, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and you, maybe you use might be now, nowadays there's a lot of used stuff, but it is a lean towards vintage, but, um, so much pre-owned stuff now kind of floats around that you're helping people connecting people to. When did you get into watches? Man, I was, I've been into watches for a long time. Pre, I, like pre Porsche. Oh yeah. Like okay. middle school. Yeah, like I yeah. remember going in, I don't know who's listening to this podcast, but like Brindle's catalogs and best catalogs scrolling through those wanting the Seiko best products. Yes. I, I God, I remember that store so well yeah. behind Crabtree mall. Oh man. I would go into best or Brindle's. Or no, that was br- where Brindle's was. Yeah. Brindle's, Brindles was behind. Like you gotta be, you gotta be over, I don't know, 40, 45 to know what Brindles is, but I would look at their watches and try on. And at the time I was probably chasing like a Casio diver's watch. Yeah. I wasn't even thinking about that Seiko in the corner because it was like, it may have been like over a hundred dollars. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going that, but I, I was wearing a watch in middle school. And the reason I would get watches is because I would wear it every single day. Mm -hmm. And after four months it would kind of crap out but it was a cheap watch so then i would move to like that timex vietnam issue plastic manual wind but it would get wet and crap out so i kept 
I kept going up and up and up to, to getting nicer watches. I've got some cool watch stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, share one. What, what's one that comes off the uh, dome? One, my first Rolex story is I was in summer school at VMI. And I didn't, I didn't have a Rolex. Uh, I didn't know anybody with a Rolex, but there's a dude that had a Rolex and uh, we became buddies. And I, at the time I had a Volkswagen Cabriolet and we, he, we, it was like some Thursday afternoon. He's like, man, let me drive your car. I'm like, yeah, look, come drive my car. So we're outside of Lexington, Virginia, driving some back roads. He's driving it and he goes off and we go hit this barbed wire fence in my car. He's driving it. We crashed the car. We're fine. And, um, so uh, I'm like, oh, well, you know, at the time, I don't know insurance or whatever. So I'm just thinking, oh, well, there he crashed it. So his dad's going to pay for the car. But it's your insurance, obviously, that's going to cover it. But his dad gave me a Rolex Submariner since we paid to fix the car as like a gesture. Like, hey, I'm sorry my son crashed your car. And so he gave me a Rolex Submariner that was used, stainless steel date. So now I'm like this... 19 year old with a Rolex Submariner. I wore it for maybe six months, but ultimately sold it to help pay tuition. But how cool was it to get out of a car crash? I got a stainless Submariner. Um, it would have been great to still have it, but at least I sold it to pay tuition to help get me through college. I don't know, man. I just, I just keep thinking how you didn't want to be in school and <laughs> and yeah. now you're watchless. <laughs> yeah. I, I but yeah, that's true. But I knew I that, I mean that's why I went to VMI. I knew I needed to get a college degree. Right. And right. uh so paying for school and graduating debt free. I mean it helped. It probably paid for a semester maybe a semester of college or something like that or half a semester. Yeah, and that degree will help you make money later yeah. to maybe buy another Rolex. That, yeah, that's, that's true. That's all good, but all right, let's touch on your company, Rotor Supply. Yes, Rotor Supply. So I would I would say Rotor Supply is really curated car culture. And we're doing things in and around analog movement. So cars, we're, we're brokering cars, we're buying cars, um, offering uh, consulting advice on how to modify yours or personalize yours. Uh, and, and also watches. The Rotor, which was kind of the cornerstone of our name is on a Porsche 911. It's on a Ducati. It's, it's on the Hoyer or Omega Seamaster or Rolex. So that, that sure. rotor kind of ties things together, that analog movement with a sense of occasion. But yeah, we're, we're buying and selling watches and little fun stuff, putting on the rallies there under the rotor supply umbrella. Uh, but yeah, all things, all things, car culture and trying to chase cool. Why coffee? Why coffee? You know, I never drank coffee much, and uh, a friend, Justin Butler, who's a big help with the coffee and uh, and the the rallies. I was doing in, an, an inner bike east kind of thing outside, and he has an espresso machine, and he made me an espresso. I'd never really had it. This was probably four years ago. Never drank coffee in my life, uh, and then he gave me an espresso. I was like, yeah, that's cool. And then worked the the bike event. Stayed at his house the next morning. He's like, do you want another espresso? I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, and I had another one and then did the bike event. And then the third morning I said, I want an espresso and I just enjoyed it. There's no sugar there, but, but I start my day with an espresso. And so coffee, uh, is just kind of brings people together. People are always talking about coffee, cars and coffee. So that's a, an extension of kind of rotor supply and just good coffee to good people. Okay. So early on, those first three espressos, were you paying attention to how it tastes? I think I was because if you get, 
I don't want to throw Starbucks under the bus, but if you get an, an espresso, no, throw those people under if, the bus. If you get an espresso at like a franchise, <laughs> right. it's it's really inconsistent above all. And that's a that's being polite. That's so being polite. But if someone does a fresh ground pull on beans of espresso, it's fantastic, and it doesn't need sugar added, and so. He had fresh beans. He ground them that morning and did a great pull in a in a home machine. And I'd never really been exposed to that. Now Justin is still roasting beans for what you're selling. Justin, it helps with the coffee. He and I are, are schlepping the coffee, but he's not the roaster. He helps pick some of the the uh, the batches, and we we it is roasted locally in North Carolina. We have a roaster. Daniel Krenzer is uh, our roaster. He gets the beans and helps with. Uh, the roasting and he's got it down. He's the the mad scientist that, that has a lot of experience. He's done it all. He started roasting coffee in a popcorn roaster in his garage, oh, that's just great. sampling. And now he's got it dialed. So the beans are fantastic. I mean, it's a big difference than grocery store beans. Yeah, for sure. Um, so is he in Chapel Hill? He is not in Chapel Hill. He He's outside of Chapel Hill. Daniel is. And, and actually Justin's in, in Charlotte. Oh, okay. Yeah. So do you just call... Daniel and tell him the taste profile you're looking for. And then he's the scientist that, you know, put, puts the, the, the I think, work into it. I think I'm, my palate probably isn't mature enough to say, Daniel, I want this. It's probably more of Daniel saying, Hey, check out this Columbia single origin bean. This is a dark roast and it's fantastic. And this might work for you. So whether it's Rwanda, Brazil, Ethiopia, Colombia, Mexico, he he has that knowledge. And then I'll taste some, and I'm like, oh, this this is good. Let's do this. So we have two currently, but I think we're going to introduce a third and maybe a fourth soon. Okay, so they're just labeled Rotor Supply Coffee and then Single Origin Colombia. Correct. So that isn't per se like a branded unit that you guys make i.e the pike place from starbucks is always going to be pike place right so you're rotating these beans there's never like a okay this is our single origin columbia this this is this always going to be single origin columbia okay so you always ha sell this at, at, if you go on and you click the columbia it's always this okay if you go it. on and you click what we call our classic blend right it's always going to be a columbia and a mexico bean combined to okay. give that taste profile so it's, a, it's a two bean yeah that 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 blend is this is a single origin so yes it's this is always this flavor um however there are others that we may introduce but it's not like this is going to change okay if you order it in january you order it again in march it's identical okay because cool. it's the same bean from the same farm in columbia and at the same roasting temperature for the same amount of time right. all that's done right so so you offer two varieties of coffee. correct right now we have Got two it. varieties and we're looking at uh adding a third or a fourth and maybe sassing up our badge i, I like that it's simple excuse me our bag but also i think you know, maybe it's not dynamic enough so i'm looking at revisiting packaging packaging so it ships easier we ship a lot and uh um we're growing everyone that has it says it's it's fantastic so i'm getting that feedback from peers just because i'm i'm still relatively new to the coffee community but uh it's super cool what is like an in initial investment like like if you wanted to start your own coffee label provided you've got the hookup and the friendships to the uh, initial investment it. i it, it'd be hard to say um because we we are lucky to have Daniel in our corner. Uh, having an ace, whether you're searching for an air-cooled car 
a timepiece or good coffee, having someone in your corner that's an ace makes a big deal. And it's like that with anything in life. Um, so it's hard to, I, I don't know a number. I sh- probably should know a number like, oh, it's this. But, uh, and, and I think we're still evolving. We're going to redo our bag and that's going to be an investment as well. Uh, we definitely need through the off months of driving, need to invest in ourselves, the rotor supply and the website. So I guess that partly comes from like, is there a minimum order quantity that you actually have to do through Daniel? Or is he just like, Hey man, tell me how many bags you want. Like, is it that casual or it's pretty casual? Um, and Daniel's owns a Porsche. He's a fan. Uh, so he's, he's, uh, we're not saying like I'm coming by to pick up two 12 ounce bags because that's just ridiculous. Right. But uh, so we do put in an order, pick it up and it's it's freshly roasted. Um, and then we'll we'll because he's close, we can go back to him every two months and he's he's bagging other stuff as well. So we're, we're kind of that if you think about making a T-shirt run and maybe gaps making a thousand T-shirts and you plug your 200 t-shirts at the end of that gap run we're kind of doing that with the coffee so it's still locally roasted uh and we're utilizing that that asset in daniel to to get the beans together i see so he's roasting for other people he's not- he's roasting for, yeah for other for other people for himself mainly for that they have a coffee shop that they do uh actually a couple coffee shops and so he's serving at retail serving to consumers but he's just passionate about the about the process and the product well let's plug his shop where is it yeah it's uh um alamance uh, excuse me it's converge coffee in burlington north carolina he has two retail locations they do great stuff uh it's worth worth dipping in there nice well, you you still ride mostly are you are you mostly riding road bikes these days or are you still riding mountain bikes i'm mostly riding road out of convenience right. but um I love to get on the mountain bike and it's a total body workout. There's no fear of, of traffic. And so probably as I was mentioning before we went on air, I'd love to hit 500 miles a month, maybe, maybe three road rides and a mountain bike ride weekly and 125 miles a week. So I roll into spring with some fitness. I'm, my, my local guys out are going to laugh because I usually roll into spring with no fitness, hairy legs, and I'm just sitting on the back, but I'm going to try to, to come in with some fitness so that I can contribute before the month of May. I love it, man. So you probably shaved the legs back in the nineties. Do you still shave your legs? Well, if, if I'm riding a lot and riding hard, I do. Cause you can get a massage. You can do uh, whether it's an imbrication or a post ride. Uh, and it just feels good. You feel fast. You're kind of all in. Right. Uh, so right now my legs are not shaved, but I do think about sometimes you need that, that visual cue of an internal commitment and shaving your legs can be that like, Hey, I'm all in. I just shaved my legs. I need to ride or they're going to be like, who's this dude. And I'm already like a pasty white Irish English historic dude. So when I, when my legs are shaved, those are some white legs. They're like, is he wearing painter pants or is he, is he out there riding? I love it, dude. Yeah. Well, listen, man, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for flying from LA specifically for this podcast. I know you had no other business. No engagements. Uh, yeah, no other engagements. Uh, took the red eye just for this. Uh, so what a nod to, to uh, getting this done. And you know what? Leaving with a single origin rotor supply bag of beans is only going to help that red eye just become whiter. Oh, yeah. Really. 
You should just grab a mouthful and chase them <laughs> with water on the flight and stay up and start the, the Harry Potter trilogy and try and finish that before you land. Yeah, that's exactly the plan, actually. So yeah. I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, uh, again, coming out. It's been such a good journey and uh, just texting and, and laughing and messaging each other from coast to coast. Yeah, man, it's been a blast. Thanks, Charles. All right, man. Thank you. All right. I'd like to thank Charles one more time for taking part in the show. Thanks again to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for always providing the theme track as well as to clear audio for the noise cancellation headphones. Stay tuned in two weeks. We're back with another one. Thanks so much, guys. Ciao.